0: I did an internet search today, and all I put in were the words Noah's Ark, and then I clicked on the little image tab just to see what would come up. And so I thought I'd share some of those with you. Some of the images that come to mind when people think of Noah's Ark, some of the first. Now, I curated this a little bit, so there's a little bit of bias in the pictures that I chose, but not a lot. So all of these were found within the first, I would say, 10 to 11 pictures. And the first one that you'll see was the first one that came up. So here is Noah's Ark, possibly. There it is. Now, what I love about this one is just that all of these animals are somehow smiling. I've never seen a single animal smile once, ever. But all of these animals are smiling, All of them are getting along. This little guy, which is kind of weird because he's by himself, but the orangutan here particularly looks excited about the adventure on which they're about to be set. And so just a, a bright, sunny picture of the end of the world. Oh, he's not alone. Look, he's got a friend up at the top. I didn't even notice him. The next one, I think this is a bold one because this book apparently won the Caldecott Medal, and I don't want to call Peter Spire out, but I believe there may be some plagiarism involved. Because it's, at least from what I've researched, he didn't write Noah's Ark. And so he's taking some credit for something that he didn't do. But again, we have a pretty happy picture where all the animals are joining in. I think it's nice that the elephants are giving a bath to all the creatures that are in the water, but probably a little bit of a wasted effort there. They've got a nice clothesline. That's a touch. I've got a laser pointer, so let's use that. A nice clothesline here at the top, which is a touch that I've never seen before. The next one I like to call... Lisa Frank meets the end of the world. Nope, not this one. Nope, we got one more to go. This one, I just love it because it's just bright and cheery and Noah looks very young in this one. The next one is Lisa Frank meets the end of the world. And I like this one because it appears as though that Noah is fishing and down here at the bottom, a very aggressive shark is about to take place. And this water is filled with very aggressive sharks and you think that they could have taken a break from being aggressive because, you know, the world's ending and stuff. Now, this next one, I had some hope because all of these, as we're going to see, the point here is that we tend to caricature the story of Noah's Ark a little bit, and we've turned it into a bit of a children's story, but I got excited about this next picture because it seems as though, look how concerned they all are. Like, the world is ending, and they're all very sad about it. At least I thought, because then I looked harder, and what they're actually concerned about is this couple of beavers here that have eaten through the boat. And so they don't care about anything that's going on around here, but only what's going on right here. Now, the last one I want to show you is one that I've talked about before. But listen, you don't go to an Eagles concert and not hear Hotel California. You don't go to a Beach Boys concert and not hear God Only Knows. You don't hear me talk about Noah's Ark without mentioning the Christmas inflatable. Now, this is something I've seen with my own eyes. At Christmas, an inflatable Noah's Ark with the inscription at the top, joy to the world. Now, perhaps you're here and you've never heard the story of Noah before. This seems a bit rude. And a little bit of Noah thumbing his nose at everyone else, because if this were said in the actual story, all around here, everyone is drowning and dying. Meanwhile, Noah's on the boat and took the time to hang the banner, joy to the world. It's weird. And maybe it's because... This is a story that has a feature of animals, and so animals are very cute, and so maybe that's why this story has become something that we've cutified and cartooned up a little bit. But the reality is, this is is a tragic story. This is a dark story. And what's even more overwhelming is that this is a story not of a natural catastrophe, but of God's wrath unleashed. This is a story of the justice of God and the anger of God on full display. And so this isn't a cute children's story. This isn't a cartoon. This isn't something with happy, smiling animals on their way to some sort of great adventure. This is the story of a God who had had enough and wanted to wipe out everything that he had made. But it isn't only that. It's a story of a God grieved to the heart by the sin of the world, but yet still filled with mercy. This is a story of faithfulness and salvation. Salvation in spite of sin, in spite of great sin. This is a story of God delivering his people. And so we're going to look over the entire story of Noah and the flood that goes from chapter 6 verse 9 and we're going to go all the way through 8:19 but for the sake of time we're going to read the last little bit of that chapter and then go through the rest of it as we find it and so from Genesis chapter 8 verses 13 through 19 it says in the 601st year in the first month the first day of the f- month the waters were dried from off the earth and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked and behold the face of the ground was dry In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, Go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you, all of flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, and they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife's sons with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. May God add his blessing and his favor to the reading of his word. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you as always for your word. And we just have to confess of the times when we make it into something that it's not. But God, this is a story of great tragedy not just from a natural standpoint, but God, from a spiritual standpoint, a cosmological standpoint, this is a reminder of what sin is and how deeply and how greatly it affects you. And so God, as we read this passage, help us to feel the full weight But also, God, help us to see how amazing it is that in spite of this kind of great sin, that you still have a plan to deliver your people. And in the story of Noah, help us to see the story of the gospel. That even in a world filled with sin and brokenness, even when we ourselves are filled with sin and brokenness, that you have a plan to deliver your people out of chaos and calamity and into promise. So speak through your word. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. I've heard a story, multiple stories, about these certain types of swim training programs for kids. And they're kind of new and they're kind of different. And the idea, and I'm pretty sure that I'm probably really stripping it down to an oversimplification. But from what I understand, the basic premise of these swim lessons is that they take your baby, and I'm not talking about like when we call three-year-olds babies. They take your baby, your little baby, and then just just throw it out into the pool. And the babies learn to hit the pool, go into the water, and then like some sort of little otters, turn on their backs and float to the surface. And it's crazy. And apparently it works. I've only seen it in videos. And if you want to go watch videos, they're really strange because it's just these tiny little babies underwater, panic for a minute, turn, and then just swim to the surface. It's incredible. But it's a horrifying thing to think about, and there's no way I could imagine doing that with my own children. In fact, from what I've heard, these places have a policy where parents aren't allowed in the room for the first couple of days because it just triggers something deep inside of you when someone's like, oh, here's your baby in the water. And so they make all parents stay out because it's a horrifying premise that you're just going to throw a baby in the water and think, you better learn to swim or else you're going to die. And sometimes it feels like this is how God deals with us, that God takes us in all of our infancy and all of our weakness and all of our folly and then just throws us out in the midst of a circumstance that we can't handle and that we're not prepared for. And I don't know about you, but I would imagine that all of us at some point in time have found ourselves in the midst of a situation, in the midst of a storm in life where we feel like we're in wide open panic because we don't know how to do anything. I know I've told you this before, but I took swim lessons when I was a kid. They were a bit more traditional. I was probably four or five, but I missed about three solid days in the middle, which apparently are the days where they, I don't know, teach you to swim. And so I came back on jump off the diving board in the deep end day, and they didn't want to catch me up, and so I just went with the line, jumped off the diving board, sank to the bottom, and thought, this is where I die. I remember there was no panic. It was just, nope, it's been a good run four solid years. It's the end. If the Lord wills it, I'm gone. I just remember sinking to the bottom and then the lifeguard jumps in and takes me up. But there was just this feeling of, I have no idea how to handle the circumstance that I'm in at this exact moment. But God, here in this passage of scripture, reveals himself to be a God who knows us very well and doesn't leave us for dead, and doesn't leave us to figure these things out on our own, but equips us and prepares us to handle what's coming. Something was coming in this story that no one could prepare for. Noah one could prepare for. <laughs> Guys, you know it was funny. So something was coming that absolutely no one could prepare for, no one could have an understanding on how to deal with this, and God starts to reveal his plan to Noah. And God says that he has a bigger plan for Noah, and he simply isn't throwing him out to sea, literally or figuratively, to figure out what that plan is on his own. But in chapter 6, verse 14, Right after God says this, in verse 13, he says, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And then in verse 14, he says, make yourself an ark. Of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits in breadth. It's 50 cubits and in its height, it's 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to the cubit above, and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second and third decks. Behold, I will bring flood waters to destroy all flesh, which is in breath under heaven. Everything that's on it shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. God says something is coming that you can't handle. Something is coming that you are not gonna be able to bear or withstand, but I have a plan for you that goes beyond this, and you're gonna make it through the storm, you're gonna make it through the flood. But if you want to do that, here's what you need to do you need to build a boat. You need to make yourself an ark. And then he goes through and he gives them all of these intricate details for how we should do this. So not only does he tell him that something big is coming, not only does he say you need to build yourself a boat so that you can be safe, but he says this is how you build this boat. This is what it needs to look like. This is how big it needs to be. Here's the amount of levels that it needs to have. Here's what you need to do as far as putting its rooms together. And you need to seal it all with pitch. He gives every single detail that Noah needs. Everything that they need for survival is given to them in great detail. And I love this story, too, because we see again here that not only is God concerned with Noah and his family, but he continues saying that you should bring animals of every living thing of the flesh. You shall bring two of every sort into of the ark and keep them alive with you. And they will be male and female of the birds, according to their kinds of the animals, according to their kinds of every creeping thing on the ground, according to its kind, two of every sort shall come with you. And so God is concerned not only about the people here, but about the creatures of the world too. And we see this all through the opening passage of Genesis. Sometimes it can be easy to be so me-focused and so people-focused that we forget that God has an intimate and compassionate concern for all of his creation as well. And so he says, I have a plan for you, and I have a plan for this world, but I've got to do some cleansing. I've got to do some purifying first. And so something horrific is about to come, but you're going to make it through. Here's what you need to do. Here's all the details that you have. Here's all the instructions. Here's who you're going to bring along with you. And also, as he often tells us to do, bring some food along for the journey. Just like he tells the Israelites before they head out of the Exodus. Just like he tells us every time we come to the table to take the communion meal. He wants us to be well-nourished and well-fed so that we can go on the journey that he has for us. God gave Noah all that he needed to be safe in the midst of the storm. He equipped Noah for something incredible. But these instructions would have been meaningless for Noah had he not acted on them. If God would have said, you need to build your boat, and here's the dimensions, and here's how you do it, and here's how you need to set it up, and then Noah said, okay, check, 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 got it, good, and then waited and rested on his laurels, he would have died with everyone else. And so that's where verse 22 comes in. It says, Noah did this. He did all that God had commanded him. And then Genesis 7 at the beginning, in good Genesis fashion, gives us a summary of everything that just took place. It says, then the Lord said to Noah, go into your ark, you and all your household, for I've seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens, also male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made will blot out from the face of the earth. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Noah heard what God was going to do. And Noah knew that God was a God who kept his promises. And so when God told Noah to act, he acted. When God gave Noah all the details and the instructions that he needed to follow, when God gave him all the tools that he needed for life and survival, Noah took those things and then he did everything that God had instructed him to do. He was faithful. You see, we learn in this passage that God always, gives his people what they need to prepare for his plan, whether he reveals it or not. In this particular instance, God tells Noah what the big plan is, but throughout Scripture, we see other times where God doesn't give all the details. Sometimes God doesn't give any of the details, and yet he still prepares and equips his people to do that and then expects us to be faithful to put in the work so that we're ready. One of the things that we believe sometimes that the Bible says that it actually doesn't. And maybe you've heard people quote this. Maybe you've heard people quote this recently, is that God will never put us through anything that we can't handle. God will never allow us to go through anything that we can't deal with. Now, God will never allow us to be tested beyond what we can bear, but God will allow us to go through circumstances that we can't handle. God will allow us to go through circumstances that are way beyond our pay grade, circumstances that are devastating at times, circumstances that we can't do anything about, storms of which we have no control over. But he always is faithful to prepare us to endure those things. When we look at the big narrative, the big story of Scripture, We see the big highlights of what God is doing, but in the middle of that, God is always preparing his people. In the Old Testament, God is setting the stage for Jesus to come into the world and bring salvation to the world. And from Genesis all the way to Malachi, God is giving us these whispers that something bigger is coming teaching the people to move in the rhythms of his grace, giving them the tabernacle in the temple, teaching them the importance of sacrifices, teaching them what it means to be faithful, teaching them the law to recognize they can't keep it. He's preparing them for something bigger. As Jesus walks around with his disciples, he's not simply teaching them about life and how it works, but he's preparing them. Preparing them to do incredible and awesome things for the kingdom of God. Preparing them for the time that they weren't prepared for. Remember, we've talked about Peter's fears. Jesus kept predicting his death over and over again. Peter was shaken to the core because he knew deep inside, I don't have what it takes to keep doing this if you're not around. And yet it's Peter that we see that Jesus had equipped from the inside out, standing Before the congregations in Acts chapter 2, preaching on Pentecost, the message of the gospel and seeing thousands of people coming to faith in Christ because Jesus was preparing them for something beyond their wildest imagination. And now God is preparing us. He's preparing the church on a daily basis to do the work that we're called to do, to be active in kingdom ministry and in gospel work, work that we are not qualified for except by the grace of God and work that we don't have the skills or gifts to do except for what God equips us and gifts us to do. And he's preparing us each and every day to do that work. And then he's also shaping us and forming us for eternity. Just like Noah, we have all that we need to endure whatever this life brings. We have all we need to be prepared for salvation. Paul tells us that all scripture is beneficial for salvation and teaching and reproof, that the word of God is living and breathing and active and equipping us, that the Holy Spirit moves in and through us, teaching us and guiding us. And we have the church where we all come together to put our gifts on the table and share with other people so that as iron sharpens iron, so we can all sharpen one another, so that we can be equipped and prepared not only for whatever comes here and now, but also for the eternity that God has prepared for us. And we need to learn to follow Noah as Noah followed God to recognize that God has given us all that we need in Scripture and through the Holy Spirit and through one another to be fully equipped for the work that he's called us to do, to be fully equipped for everything that's going to come in our lives, but not sit back and just look at that as a good thing in theory and not participate in it, but faithfully do all that God has commanded us and be faithful in the good times so that we can endure during the hard times. Because we have a God who equips us. But we also see here that we have a God who gives shelter. And so Noah takes that responsibility, and he begins to do everything that he's supposed to do. He puts the ark together, he goes through all the work, and he makes it the way that he was supposed to. And in chapter 7, verse 15, it says, they all went the people, the animals, everybody, went into the ark with Noah. Two and two of all flesh in which there was breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, all flesh, went in the ark as God commanded them. So Noah took all God's instructions, put them to work. But then when it came time for the most important part, we see that it wasn't Noah's work, but God's. Because the last sentence there in verse 16, after they've all come into the ark, it says, and the Lord shut them in. And I love that passage because it goes so well when we look at what happened in chapter 6, verse 18, when God makes this covenant with Noah. He says, I'll establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your son's wives with you. He's saying, I'm going to protect you. And so you build this boat. You put everything where it's supposed to be. You bring everybody here. But when it comes to the part that really matters, God does the heavy lifting. And God shuts them in. And I don't know what kind of craftsman Noah was. I don't know if we're supposed to assume here that he was a master or not. But it seems like if he needed all those kind of details, that this is all fairly new to him. But what's amazing is that it doesn't matter. Even if Noah's craftsmanship was shoddy, even if he missed some boards, even if he didn't put everything together just the right way, it wasn't about his ability to do this perfectly, but it's about the fact that God had called him to be faithful, and he was faithful, and so God had promised that he would protect him and give him shelter, and that's exactly what he did. God seals them in and puts his hedge of protection around them. We talked last week about this idea of the remnant inside of Scripture, that no matter how bad things got, whether it's here in Genesis or later on when we see the people of Israel starting to fall into sin and going into captivity and then going in later into exile in Assyria and Babylon, when we see all these things seemingly fall apart, God always has reserved for himself a remnant, a group of people who were faithful. And it might, looking at it from an idealistic perspective, we might say, well, if these people are faithful, if Noah was righteous in the eyes of God, and if he really did find favor with God, and he was faithful, then certainly God is going to take him out. That God's going to take him up to a mountain, and they're going to live somewhere safely and have everything that they need. Surely, when people are faithful, God is going to remove them and protect them and keep them from harm. And there are people and places that will teach that that's true. That if you just put your faith in God, then you won't get sick. Then life won't happen. That you won't endure pain or hardship. That life will be good. And if you're really, really faithful, God will be really, really good. And your life will be good. And so if it's not, maybe you're not being faithful enough. But that's not what we see here. It says that Noah was the most righteous man in all the world. That he was faithful to do all that God had commanded him. There was nothing more that Noah could have done, and yet God still wasn't going to remove him from the situation. You see, God's remnant is not about escaping, but being delivered through. It's not about being removed from the storm, but having the ability to endure the storm when it comes. It's not about being pulled away from trials and tribulations and difficulties, but it's about being strengthened and giving the tools and all that you need to be able to go head first in the middle of difficulty and pain and suffering and come out on the other side. We see this in the book of John. As Jesus is preparing to go to the cross, and he's praying for his followers, and he knows what's going to come. Jesus told them, they hated me, and so they're going to hate you as well. And Jesus knew that as the disciples were going to continue on this mission, that they were going to suffer, and they were going to die, and they were going to be imprisoned, and they were going to hurt, and they were going to be overwhelmed and persecuted. And so Jesus could have gotten down and prayed, God, take them away from this, and let's just end this now. But he didn't. He said, don't take them out of the world, but leave them in it. when we look at the magnitude of what's happening in this story, this is total and complete destruction. And I love the contrast that happens here in Genesis chapter 6 and 7. Because remember, if you were here and we talked about Genesis chapter 1, the first two verses of the Bible said that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was dark, and it was empty, and it was formless, and waters covered the face of the deep. And so when we see this passage of scripture where we see God unleashing the waters back over the face of the earth, God is literally uncreating everything that he created, and Noah has to endure it. This is someone enduring the end of the world. This is someone enduring God, taking all that he has made and all that was good in the world and stripping it away and starting back from scratch. And yet there is Noah and the people that God had put with him, and they are enduring this storm. And it's not easy. They're not smiling. They're not happy. They're not a children's story. This is chaos. And Noah's reward for faithfulness wasn't being taken out of it, but giving shelter from it. God is setting the precedence here in this story that he doesn't take his people out of the mess. He doesn't take us out of the storms. He doesn't take us out of the chaos, but he gives us what we need to endure it. And that's why it's so crucial and so important for us to follow that testimony of Noah, to be faithful and preparing in the seasons when things aren't so bad, so that when the chaos comes, when the storms come, we're not standing on shaky foundation, but we're standing on the steadfast truth of the gospel that the God who brought me to this tragedy will bring me through it one way or the other. We see that so fully in the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as they stand before the furnace saying, you know what? If we go, we go. God can deliver us from the fire or he can keep us inside of it. But one way or the other, we will be delivered from this because they knew that their lives were not in the hands of a pagan king, but were in the hands of the God of eternity. And so whether they were delivered from the fire or had to walk through it into eternity, they knew that they were safe in the shelter of their almighty God. The reality is is that trials will come. And in fact, becoming a follower of Christ is not an invitation into an easy life, but a call into a much more difficult life. We shouldn't look at our trials or our tragedies as an evidence of faithlessness but a reward for faithfulness, and to have the endurance and the steadfastness to trust in God and to trust in all that he's done for us, knowing that he will deliver us one way or the other, whether it's through providential intervention or through death itself, that we have a hope that lasts beyond anything this world could do to us. Because we have a God who not only equips us, but a God who gives us shelter in the midst of the storm. And then finally, we see here that God remembers. There are a lot of numbers in this story. Ones that, that come into our minds, because this is, again, a story we teach from a time that we're very young. And whether you've grown up in church or not, you've probably heard at least some semblance of the story of Noah and his ark. And so we think about two by two, and animals coming into the ark two by two. We think about it raining 40 days and 40 nights. There are these numbers that stick in our head, but there are more numbers than that. And when we look at chapter 8, we see some of those numbers. Starting in verse 24 of verse seven, or chapter 7, moving into chapter 8, it says, And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him. And God made the wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the waters of the heavens were closed and the rains of heaven were restrained and the waters receded the days are from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, water had abated. I was once on a deep sea fishing boat for 45 minutes before I started hurling. The thought of 40 days is horrific. The thought of 150 days is something that my mind cannot even fathom, because it's not just when the storm was coming, but then they just get to hang out on a boat in the water after a flood for 150 days. Ugh. Remember a few weeks ago, we talked about the cry of the psalmist who said, how long, O Lord, And was asking the question, God, how long will you forget me? And I have to imagine, were I on a boat for this long, I would start to assume that God had forgotten me. And we could assume that Noah felt this way, that he was forgotten by God. And this is something that we do. And when I say we, I mean the people of God, all throughout the history of God interacting with humanity. Remember, in the Exodus story, When God providentially rescues his people out of 400 years of slavery and captivity... They get to see the most powerful nation in the world overcome by their God who doesn't even break a sweat to bring them out of this captivity that no one else could take them out of. They see God work in an incredible, awesome way, splitting the seas open so they could walk through on dry land. And they start walking around in the wilderness for a little while, and they start saying things like, God, did you save us to die here? Why would you even rescue us if we were just going to die in the wilderness. It would have been better for us to have died in Egypt than to come out here and starve to death. And after a an amount of time on a boat like that, it would be safe to assume that there were days when these people could have thought, we could have just died in the flood. Is this really any better than just dying in the flood? At least it would be short and quick, and maybe it'd be tragic, but we're just going to slowly die here because it's incredibly possible that God made this promise and then just forgot about us. But God remembered Noah, and not just Noah. Again, there in verse 18, we're reminded that everything that was with Noah on the ark, that God remembered all of it. That God cared about, as verse 18 says, every creeping thing and every bird and everything that moves on the earth went out by the families from the ark. I love that passage. I love that it doesn't just say that God delivered Noah. I love that it doesn't just say that God saved Noah, but it uses the phrase there that God remembered Noah. But what's crazy is that that didn't set them free. They were on that boat for months after God remembered Noah. But he never forgot him, and he never forgot his promises. The hard thing about this is that time feels like a very precious commodity to us. I think I've always been aware of this, but it feels different even watching children grow up, because you want to hold on to every single moment and there are times when things happen and you think, I just wish I could just, just hold on to this forever. And you watch time start to fly away and you see the seasons change and we start to realize that we have an end date. And so we want to get in as much as we can. And waiting is one of the most difficult things to do because it feels like we're just wasting our time, that God is just wasting our time. And the longer that things last, the longer that storms and seasons of difficulty last, the more we start to doubt and the more we start to fear. But God remembers. God remembers his people. God remembers those that are faithful. God remembers the promises that he makes. And so he calls us to be people of perseverance. I think that's one of the characteristics we look at the least when it comes to what it means to being a Christian. And yet it seems as though the New Testament is much more concerned with that than it is almost anything else. We're called to be holy. We're called to be righteous. We're called to love one another. But we are also called to be people who persevere. And at the end of the day, the ultimate assurance of our salvation is that we make it to our salvation. And that we persevere through this life and into the next. But to do that, we have to remember that God remembers. And he's given us all these little stops along the way with our baptism and with communion. And the fact that we get to come together week after week and worship God together to be reminded. But we have to keep our minds fully on the fact that God remembers us that he's a God who never leaves us or forsakes us, but that he cares about his children and he honors his promises and that he is always going to remain faithful. And what's even more amazing is that he is faithful even when we're not. And so in those seasons where it feels like God is distant or that God has forgotten, those are the seasons when we need to run back to Scripture and be reminded that God never forgets his people and that one day in his time, God remembers and God delivers. And that's exactly what happens here at the end of this passage. Noah begins to test these promises of God. He sends out a raven to go and find land and it comes back with nothing. And then he starts to send out doves and those doves start to experience signs of hope. And so then the faith is restored and the hope is restored and now they just wait. And then in verse 15 of chapter 8, in the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out, and then after what feels like a very long time, God speaks to Noah again, and he says, go out from the ark you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you, all of flesh, birds and animals, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. I love how thorough that commandment is. He doesn't just say, okay, Noah, it's time to get out, but he rehashes his entire promise to Noah, saying, everything that I said to you is true. This deliverance that you've been waiting for and longing for is happening right now. And so step out of the boat and into my promise. And they walk out onto dry ground. Because God not only remembered, but he fulfilled his promise. God not only gave shelter, but he gave salvation. And as we look at the big narrative of Scripture and find our place in there, We're in the midst of our flood story. Jesus promised that life was going to be hard and that life in the church was often going to be a life of suffering. And we may experience tragedies on a variety of different levels, but we are going through a season where the church is being tested and tried and broken and has been since the very first day of its inception. The very first Christians martyred for their faith all throughout history, Christian missionaries going out with the knowledge that they would never come back, that they were living through that flood story. But we have the promise that deliverance is coming. And this is the hope of the gospel. Not that you can have your best life right now. Not that you can have everything the way that you want in all the places that you can, but that life may be difficult, that you may have to endure a variety of things, that God may not only allow you to go through difficult things, but God may call you into difficult things and expect you to persevere and endure through those things because he's given you all that you need, but to do so with the hope and the knowledge that one way or the other, that God has made a promise that he would deliver us not simply out of these t- these problems of our lives not out of these tribulations of our lives but that he would deliver us out of darkness and into marvelous light once and for all that we have a hope and an inheritance that will make everything that's come good or bad pale in comparison and so you're here and you've never put your faith in christ before when the call goes out to follow jesus It's not a call to follow Jesus and find happiness, although there is happiness in following Jesus. It's not a call to find security and peace all through your life, but it's a call to find a peace that surpasses all understanding when life around you feels like chaos. It's not a call to come and simply be religious, but come and follow Jesus wherever he calls you to go. And sometimes that's difficult and sometimes that's hard, but it's always worth it. It's a call to lose your life so that you can gain even more. And if you've never put your faith in Christ before, then please don't leave here today without talking about what it means to find salvation that begins spiritually as God saves us from sin and brokenness, but that one day we'll have an eternal fulfillment of that promise when God looks at us and says, well done, good and faithful servant, come off the boat well done, good and faithful servant, come on out. The ground is dry and enter into your promise that won't last for a lifetime, but will last for all of eternity. If you're here and you're a follower of Christ, then we have a call to obedience. God has given us everything that we need to live the life that he's called us to live, to be the people he's called us to be and to be able to endure whatever this life brings against us. But we have to be faithful to do those things. If we love Christ, we're going to keep his commandments. To keep them, we have to know them. And so we have to spend time in his word. We have to spend time in prayer. We have to spend time gathering together as the church. And then as we learn these things, not simply allowing it to be something that lives in our minds, but something that lives out through our hands and our feet, not simply being hearers of the word, but doers of the word also. But we also have a call to steadfastness, knowing that life will be difficult, Life should be difficult at times because doing gospel work requires doing difficult things, whether that means that we move across the country or you just have to talk to someone that you've never met before who's lived next to you for 10 years. God is gonna call us to do things that stretch us and call us out of our comfort, that call us out of our shelters and into storms that can feel difficult. He'll give us triumph and tragedy alike and put them in our hands and say, how are you gonna be faithful with this? how are you going to endure this? How are you going to be steadfast through this? And so we need to learn to be people who suffer well. We need to learn to be people of patience when patience is hard to come by. We need to be people who look at difficult seasons and tragedies through our lives, not trying to figure out why they happen, but figure out how we're going to use them to glorify God and for the good of others, knowing that no matter what comes, He is still good, that He remembers us through all things, and that He has equipped us to do incredible things through the most difficult times. And finally, we have a call to hope, to hope that one day, as we've been riding through this storm as followers of Christ, that one day, the flood waters will subside. That one day Christ will come again to make everything right and everything new. And he'll call us into that promise that is meant for him, that he shares with us. And we'll get to come into an eternity with a just and holy God who loves us and purifies us from the inside out. And we'll have more life there than we could ever imagine here and now. And so let's look at the example of Noah. And shape our lives around that faithfulness, that obedience, and that steadfastness clinging on to the hope and the promise that we have in God through Christ.